You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can read along with me. It's First uh, Peter chapter 3, and we're reading from verse 13 to 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Clarice. So good to be with you tonight. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke and I'm the lead pastor here. And I hate the thought of people not liking me, of people thinking I'm horrible or harsh or stupid or misguided. I want people to like me. I hate it when I let people down. I'll apologise if I do the, the slightest thing. I'm constantly saying sorry. If I, uh, Even if it's not even my fault, I'll say sorry. So if you're on the phone with me and your phone hangs up on me, I'll say sorry. Or if you bump into me on the train, I'll say sorry. And if someone else around me does something inappropriate, I'll say sorry as well. Like, I just have to make sure that everyone feels comfortable all the time. Which makes evangelism a little bit tricky. Because uh, evangelism is often awkward. There's often moments where you say something that just clangs that just doesn't fit. Someone asks you a really direct question, uh, what do you think about abortion or something like that, and you say what you believe and the response just changes everything. The mood goes icy cold. You see, being a Christian means holding to certain beliefs that don't fit in our society, that other people find offensive, that they don't like, and so you're constantly in this struggle of, will I say this? And, and you're bracing for the consequences of that awkwardness. I want to be liked by everyone, but Christianity means we can be hated by people. That's what we're seeing in 1 Peter. No matter how well you behave, how kind you are, how faithful you are, people can reject you, scorn you and judge you. 
Uh, over the past few weeks, Peter in particular has been urging his readers to live incredibly godly lives. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. Do all that you can, he's saying, to avoid any unnecessary offence. Because he says in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And yet he knows that no matter how hard they try, people will still often reject them. No matter how well we live, people will respond badly. That's what they're experiencing here. Uh, They're not experiencing physical persecution, but they're experiencing social opposition. They're being rejected by people. Uh, In verse 16, they're being maligned and slandered and reviled for their good behaviour. They're not doing anything wrong here. In fact, they're being uh, excluded because they're doing the right thing, because they're holding to Christian values and principles. They're being persecuted because they're Christians. And perhaps uh, many of us have experienced some of this as well. Uh, we don't face physical persecution, but we face social opposition. The way people casually joke about our faith or perhaps the way that they aggressively ask you a question, kind of un- uh, disbelieving that you could believe such a crazy thing. Perhaps you felt uh, scorned or overlooked or marginalised or left out because of your beliefs, because of your Christianity. And certainly we see it in the laws that are being enacted around us or the way Christians are presented in the media. We are often treated like we are maligned for doing the right thing. This is the reality for God's people. In fact, we're told throughout the scriptures that we need to expect this. In fact, Peter says in chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, in chapter 2, he says, to this you were called. This is your destiny as one of God's people. And, of course, it's what Jesus told us to expect as well. John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And he explains it's because ultimately we don't fit in this world. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, when we uh, make an allegiance, when we pledge an allegiance to God, we make enemies of men. We don't go along with what other people say. We're we're a stone in the shoe. We're the the person breaking up the party. We're, We're the killjoys or the people who seem strange. We're almost seen like traitors. If you think about it, there's this kind of uh, the world has set itself against God. It's resisting God's rule. But we are seen as the people who've gone along with God's rule, submitted to it. It's like we're traitors. We've joined the other side. And so the the Apostle Paul bottom lines it in 1 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's his message. It's a troubling idea. It's a confronting idea. But how do we deal with it? How do we respond to this? How do we uh, live in this way? How, how do we prepare ourselves for this? Well, that's what I love about this passage. See, in this passage, I think Peter gives a whole bunch of practical advice about how to prepare ourselves and what to do when we face that kind of opposition. So I'm going to go through some of the things that he says. The first thing I think he says, the first set of advice for us is to look for God when we're being opposed. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. You see, see, Peter actually flips it. He asserts that when you're being persecuted by men, 
God is actually going to bless you. It's a very strange thought. How does this happen? And yet it's what Jesus said as well. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So God promises blessing to his people when they're being persecuted. But how does this happen? I think it's the way God does it is that he comes close to us when we're suffering in this way. When people push us away, God comes closer. That's what Peter says in 1 chapter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I love that image. That when you feel like no one else is supporting you, God is resting upon you. When others run away, God comes closer. When you feel alone, God is there. When you feel rejected, God reminds you that you are chosen. When you feel powerless, God wants to come to give you his strength. So so how do we approach opposition? Well, we trust that God will bless us in it, that we will find God in it. Far from it being a sign of God's absence, it's a sign of God's presence. For when his people suffer, God draws closer to them. So we look to God. And then secondly, we stand with God. Verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. Uh, Over the past couple of years, there's been a number of laws that have been brought in in Victoria that that, uh, essentially restrict religious freedom in certain ways. Laws about what we say, where, when and to who. And sometimes I get really anxious about these laws. Like, what are the consequences for me? What does this mean for the way I minister, do my job, but also how I live? Will this impact my comfort, my family, my life? And it's easy to feel afraid and overwhelmed. When we face opposition, that's the temptation for us, to fear what will happen to fear other people's response to us, to fear what they might say or do, to fear their bad opinion of us even. But in the midst of this, Peter says, do not, have no fear of them or be troubled. Don't stress, don't be anxious, don't catastrophize. Instead, in your hearts, he says, honour Christ the Lord as holy. That's the key thing here. Christ the Lord, honouring him is the antidote to our fear. First of all, this is a reminder that we must stand firm, that we must stand with God. Ultimately, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord, the one who rules our life, the one to whom we are ultimately responsible. And so we must choose to stand with him no matter what. This will take courage. Uh, Ultimately, he's saying you need to fear God more than men. You need to think more about what God's response to you, his opinion of you is, than what humanity thinks about you. He's calling on us to stand, even if that means difficulty, even if that means persecution. We need to resolve to stand. Now, that sounds kind of overwhelming, but there's a promise in this as well because we are reminded that Jesus is God, that Christ, honour Christ the Lord as holy, that he is God, that the one that we stand with 
is a big God, a true God. Do you know when you're a kid and, and you feel like you're getting bullied, you always want to be able to say, you've got a bigger brother to look after. You know, oh, if you keep doing this, I'm going to call my big brother on you. When Christians are persecuted, we get to call on God. He's our big brother. We get to call on Jesus to support us. Now, this doesn't mean that we're immune to persecution or it's going to be easy, but it does mean Christ promises to stand with us. Yes, we are called to stand with him, but ultimately he wants us to know that he is standing with us and giving us the strength that we need in these moments. That's what the Apostle Paul discovered, 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about his weakness, but then he discovers that God is with him in this. Uh, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's that language again, resting upon him. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Every time that he chose to stand with God, he felt God stand with him. See, I often wonder, would I have the courage ultimately to stand if someone really came up against me and my faith? And the answer here is, honour Christ the Lord as holy. Choose to stand with him and he will stand with you. When overawed by the strength of men, remember the strength of God. So we stand with God and thirdly, we speak for God. Uh, Verse 15, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, Basically, this is inviting us to stand up and to explain the truth and the virtue of Christianity, of defending Christianity. There's a very long history of this. Uh, Justin Martyr in the second century wrote what was called the Apologia, the the apology or the defence of Christianity to Emperor Antonius Pius. When it says uh, apology, it doesn't mean that he's kind of apologetic about it. Oh, I'm just sorry that I'm a Christian. It's not that. He's actually, the word means to make a defence, to to show the intellectual coherence of something, to show the philosophical uh, rightness and significance and emotional wisdom of Christianity. And so uh, Justin Martyr stood up and did this because there was a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of out there that, that people were believing to be true about Christianity that was not true or was distorted. So, for instance, we know that uh, early Christians were accused of cannibalism because they'd speak about partaking of the body and blood of Jesus when they'd talk about communion. So you had to defend against that. Uh, They were also accused of incest because they would speak about each other as brothers and sisters and greeting one another with a holy kiss. And so uh, it was all distorted. And so he stands up and he makes a defence. He was prepared to make a defence for Christianity to make sure that people didn't abuse Christians out of uh, the wrong, out of ignorance. And so we should be too. You see, there's a lot of tripe trotted out about Christianity There's lots of voices out there that will belittle Christianity, write it off, exaggerating or misconstruing truth or just lying, plain lying about what we believe. And we should feel free to defend that, to defend Christianity. When people say things that are not true about us, we should be prepared to make a defence. 
So if you hear a crazy claim about Jesus, you know, that he didn't rise from the dead or he was married to Mary Magdalene or uh, he didn't actually do the miracles or any of those things, you don't have to just stand there and take that. You can make a defence. But to do that, you need to be prepared in two senses of the word. First of all, you need to be prepared intellectually. You need to know stuff to be able to refute things. You need to understand the story and the history and the theology and all of those different things. You need to be prepared in that way. But even more importantly, I think you need to be prepared emotionally and spiritually. Uh, You see, I don't think the, the problem is not so much our level of knowledge but our level of courage, whether or not we're prepared to say the things that are true because people might not like it. Uh, when I was at uni, we used to do this thing called gospel roaming. Uh, a couple of us would go out and, uh, sorry, Tiana's smiling because she used to do it with me. Uh, we'd go out and uh, we'd start conversations with people and trying to uh, tell them the gospel, having conversations about what Christianity is all about. And in, uh, often this was incredibly intimidating and, and everyone would be kind of very eager to kind of shoot down Christianity. You know the type, like the first-year philosophy student who's just like, oh, I've done two weeks of reading. I know that Christianity is false or something like this. And and they thought that they were the ones out of 2,000 years, they had been the first person to work out that Christianity is nonsense, whatever it is. And they'd ask all of these questions. And at first it was really intimidating and overwhelming. But over time I realised that I was hearing the same questions every week, slight variations but generally the same questions. And I was working out how to answer them. I was working out that most of these questions are very superficial and that there was a good answer to them. And so I realised that the issue was not so much how do I answer this person, it actually became an issue of am I willing to answer this person? Am I willing to say something that they won't like? Am I willing to contest what they say, to refute something that's false, to have an awkward moment? You see, the gospel, the message of Christianity is confronting. First of all, it can sound really weird. We believe that God came to earth, that he was born to a virgin, that he did a whole bunch of extraordinary miracles, that he died on a cross, killed by the people he'd come to save, and then he rose up again. And now God lives within us through the Spirit. Like There's a lot of unusual elements in that story. And people can easily discredit, uh, kind of uh, write them off. So it's easy for us to kind of hold back from saying that. We want to look more intelligent, more acceptable. But even more than that, the message of Christianity is offensive. Because before we say that the gospel, we talk about Christianity and, and the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But with the good news, there's also bad news. The bad news that every person is a sinner, that they're more sinful than they even realise, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can even know it? In fact, we're so sinful that we can't save ourselves. And the only way we can be saved is through Jesus dying for us and giving us new life. There's no other way, there's no other religion, no other uh, way to get to God other than Jesus. Now, all of that offends people. They don't want to hear that. And so we might not want to say it. But Peter says here, be prepared to make a defence. Intellectually, but also be prepared spiritually for the response you're going to get. 
Elliot Clark has written a fantastic little book called Evangelism as Exiles, exploring how one Peter can shape our approach to mission. And he says that one of the keys is actually just to accept that people will not respond well sometimes. He tells the story of uh, a group of Christians recently converted from Islam, talking together about how they should broach the topic of Christianity with their friends. And they're all talking about how careful they needed to be. But there was one of them in the group who was silent. And the leader could sense that he wanted to say something. So he turned to Mustafa and said, you know, what have you got to say? And he said, look, uh, before I, when I'm in these conversations, first of all, I reset my expectations. I rehearse the passages where Jesus explains what's going to happen when I tell the gospel. We're going to be insulted. Jesus promised we'll be ostracised and maybe even beaten. So I set my expectations according to his word. That way I'm not surprised when something bad happens. That's incredible courage. This is a man facing physical persecution, but he prepares himself so he's not surprised and he's able to speak. Clark concludes, if you proclaim the gospel, it will be offensive. There's no way around it. You must come to a point then of being willing to offend or else you'll never say much of anything. So we stand, we make a offence, we speak for God. But when we speak, we should do it carefully with gentleness and respect. Verse 15, be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, you do it with gentleness and respect. So yes, the gospel message is offensive, but Christians should always seek not to be offensive in how we do it. We are called here to gentleness and respect. So you can rarely win someone with one conversation you can absolutely lose them with one conversation. If you're arrogant or dismissive or obnoxious, we can lose people with this. R.C. Sproul is a gifted and experienced uh, defender of the faith. And he tells how this passage was impressed upon him. He writes, I cannot read this text without thinking of a discussion I had many years ago with a professor of philosophy. He was sceptical about whether we can give a significant reason for the existence of God. And in our discussion, I set forward all the arguments, etc. He finally said to me, well, I can't argue with me, with you, but you are an intellectual bully. Sproul says, I realised then that our defence of the faith has to be done with gentleness and respect. I actually feel like this happens a lot. I think as Christians, often we... We get in these conversations, then they become debates, and then they become arguments. And we lose the person because we've lost any sense of gentleness and respect. So how do we change that? How do we practically find a way to be gentle and respectful? Let me suggest three things. First of all, we need to recognise that it's God who saves, not us. See, I think one of the things that makes us lose our cool in a debate, is that we take on too much responsibility. We feel like it all hinges on us. It's our arguments. It's our answers. It's our ideas. That's what is needed for this person to be saved. But that's not how it works. It's ultimately in God's hands. Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the person in front of you that you're speaking to they need to be, God needs to intervene in their life. 
Now, God has placed you in their life to say something, to explain something, but ultimately it's God who needs to step into their heart. So trust that. Ask him to do that. Remember that it's God who saves and not you. And then secondly, remember that God saved you. (laughs) See, I think we forget our own story sometimes. I can be talking to someone and thinking to myself, like, why can't they get this? What's holding them back? Can't they see the truth? But of course, I was the same. If you're a believer here, there was a point in your life where you weren't trusting God. Something held you back. Perhaps it was scepticism about the miracles of the Bible. Maybe it was a resistance to Christ's lordship in your life or, or just a plain apathy. Something was stopping you until God stepped into your heart and changed things. Until God convicted you of sin and made you want his forgiveness and then pointed you to Jesus and enabled you to trust in what Jesus had done. And now his spirit is working within you to change you. That was all God's work. Don't forget what happened. Don't forget what God has done in your life because the same God can do the same kind of thing in someone else's life. I feel like if we want to be gracious to people, gentle and respectful, we need to remember God's grace to us. So thirdly, remember that ultimately Christ will triumph. See, sometimes we lose our call because it all seems so unfair. It feels unfair that you can do the right thing and be criticised for it. It seems unfair that people will treat Christians differently to how they'll treat anyone else. They'll malign us or misunderstand us. And the reality is, it is unfair. It doesn't make sense to be persecuted for doing the right thing. But it's the reality around us because there's this spiritual conflict and there are forces massing against God and his purposes. But we know, the Bible tells us, that Christ will ultimately triumph. God is allowing this to happen, but only for a time, and he assures us that justice will ultimately be done. But how can we be sure of this? It's all very well to say that Christ will win in the end, but how do we know that? Well, that's what Peter seeks to explain to us in verse 18 to 22. But he makes this point in a very strange way. If you've read the passage, you have wondered what on earth was happening. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Very clear, I'm sure, for everyone here. Uh, Martin Luther, the famed reformer and Bible commentator, said this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. I cannot understand and I cannot explain. And now I'm going to try to explain it 
<laughs> As you can imagine, there's a lot of debate about these verses. In fact, one commentator calculated that if you uh, work out the different translations of all the words, there's as many as 180 uh, different possible permutations for these verses. So we could spend ages here, folks. Let's settle in. I'm not going to go too deeply into what it all means, but I do want to say something. I do want to point out what's most significant here. See, the basic point is Peter is saying that Christ will be vindicated. That's how it's topped and tailed. Verse 18, we, we suffer, but Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then verse 22, he says, and now he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So there's this, there's this picture that Christ suffered unfairly. He was opposed and persecuted for doing the right thing, but now he's been raised up and is triumphant. And Peter is saying that because Jesus suffered like this, those who follow him will also have the same trajectory. Yes, you're suffering right now, but you will be raised up. And we know this because Christ has been raised up. That's the basic point. And if, you, if that's all you want, that's fine. Uh, I'll keep talking for another five minutes to go into the details. I think it's helpful to know that when we, we read this, it doesn't make a lot of sense because we don't have all of the context. But it's likely that the people who read 1 Peter did. They understood what he was talking about and so it was powerful for them. It's like if I say, not happy, Jan. Half of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The other half have no idea. Half of you know there was an ad in the 80s and 90s about the yellow pages. The other half don't even know what the yellow pages are. <laughs> and it's the same situation here the first readers understood what Peter was talking about. There's a few things that kind of jump out of this that can help us explore it. Four questions. Where did Christ go? Like, where's this prison that it's talking about that Jesus goes to? And then when did he go? At what point does he go to this prison? Thirdly, to whom does he speak? What, who are these spirits in prison that we're told about? And what did he say? We're told that he proclaimed something. What was that? So where did Christ go? When did he go? To whom did he speak? And what did he say? I'm indebted to Karen Jobes for those questions. There's kind of three basic interpretations that I'll run through. The first one is that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel to those who were already in hell. This is the idea that when Jesus died, as his body lay in the tomb over Easter Saturday, his spirit left his body and went to hell to preach to these spirits in prison, verse 19. Uh, these spirits in prison are sometimes thought to be the people who lived and died before Jesus came to the world, or in particular those who, who were before the flood, who did not obey God, verse 20. It's thought then that Jesus is now proclaiming the gospel to them, effectively giving them a second chance to receive the truth. It's a bit problematic, however, because the Bible seems to make it clear that we have only one chance to respond to Jesus. Hebrews 9 is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So the second option is that Christ himself proclaimed the gospel at the time of Noah. So you see these references to the flood and to Noah. The idea here is that Jesus, before he lived on earth, had another ministry in the time of Noah. This could mean Jesus was speaking through Noah or that Noah was a kind of pre-incarnation manifestation of God. 
so we have a bunch of times in the Old Testament, we have what's called theophanies, where we have uh, physical manifestations of God before Jesus comes to the world. So we have a, a moment where God appears to Abraham in a physical form. Uh, there's also a man, a strange man, who wrestles with Jacob in Genesis. And then you might remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're in the fire and they, the king looks down and sees there's a fourth figure in the fire. Uh, some people think that that's God in a physical form before Jesus. And so the idea is that uh, whether it's Jesus himself speaking through Noah or something like that, uh, God is, is intervening. So the spirits of the people who lived in Noah's time and the, the prison is a, a metaphor for them being bound by sin and ignorance and then Jesus preaches to them to give them the chance to repent. That's what second option. Third option is that he's speaking about the triumphal proclamation of Christ. That somewhere between his death and his ascension into heaven, Jesus preaches to the spirits of hell declaring his victory over them. The spirits are fallen demonic beings. The prison is the hell to which they've been condemned. And his proclamation is not a gospel offer, but a declaration that he has won, that he has defeated them. This is the view that I'd favour, but really you don't have to be dogmatic about it. But there's a, there's a bloke called Michael Heiser who gives some fascinating background on this. He sees this whole little story as a dramatic episode in this ongoing, ever-going spiritual conflict between God and the devil. And he points back to this very strange little passage in Genesis 6 where we uh, meet these figures called the sons of God, something like angels who lived among men. It seems that their, their purpose was to corrupt humanity, to kind of lead humanity into sin and then bring God's judgment upon them. And so that seems to happen. They do this and then ultimately God gets so frustrated, it seems, by human sin that he brings the flood. And so it looks like the devils have won. These, these uh, demonic beings have won. They've destroyed humanity. And yet we know that actually God restarted the world after the flood. Uh, we were just reading it as a family after dinner the other day, the story of just after the flood. It's the most beautiful little story of God restarting the world effectively, re repeating the promises that he'd given to Adam and Eve, to Noah and his family. And then jumping forward to Jesus, we see something similar happen. See, the death of Jesus looks like the ultimate victory for demonic forces. God, the creator, destroyed by his creation. And yet, of course, we know that it's God's victory, that Jesus was triumphing over sin and the grave and death itself. Colossians 2, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And so it would be appropriate then for Jesus to declare this victory, that at some point after his death, perhaps on Easter Saturday, he goes in the spirit to these forces of darkness to proclaim his victory over them. And now verse 22, he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. He has won. And I think this makes sense of the baptism bit too. Peter says that baptism is an appeal for a good conscience. Verse 21, Heiser explains that it's like a, a pledge of allegiance. And you actually see this in our baptism service. 
So we actually say to the person getting baptised, do you renounce Satan and all evil? And they renounce all that is evil. And they're choosing to pledge their allegiance to Jesus. They're saying, I'm on his side. In this great conflict, this great spiritual war, there's the forces of evil and good. And at baptism, you're declaring that you're standing with Jesus. You're on his side. In baptism, then we reject all of that and we align ourselves with the triumphant Jesus. Heiser writes, baptism is a pledge of, a lo- a pledge of loyalty to the risen Saviour, a loyalty as a public avowal of who is on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between good and evil. And it's also, he says, a visceral reminder to the defeated fallen angels. Every baptism is a reiteration of their doom in the wake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Ultimately, I think that points in the right direction. The victory of Christ over evil. And that's what we need to hear. It's all right. We're not going to do a test on how you learnt verse 18 to 22. There's a million different ideas. It's okay. Don't stress about it. But I want you to see this one big truth, that Jesus wins. That the one who suffered, the one who looked like he was defeated and beaten and nothing, pushed out, scoffed at, scorned, a man of sorrows, has now been raised to victory. That all things are subject now to him. And God wants you to know that. Because in the, in the midst of the opposition that you face, he wants you to know that Jesus wins and that you win with him. David Helm writes, Sojourners and faithful ones who are living out their life in these difficult days know this, you shall be vindicated for staying the course. Christ was vindicated and you shall be too. Christ saw a great reversal of fortunes and so shall you. Christ submitted himself to the Father and now all things are subject to him. This is what God wants us to know when we feel oppressed, when we feel on the fringes, when we feel like exiles, when we feel like this is not fair, Christ will vindicate you and his people. And this gives us hope, which points to the last thing that we do when we face persecution. We seek to point to God. So going back to verse 15, Peter says, be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. At the end of the day, when you try to make a defence of your faith, it's good to have arguments, it's good to have knowledge and all of those things, but there's something else that is most powerful and that is the witness of your life and your hope. See, hope goes beyond logic and reason and all of those things and yet, it's not, and yet it's not intangible. It's something firm and it's strong. As Sproul puts it, it's the certainty and the fullness of assurance that God will do in the future everything that he says he will do. It's the, it's the absolute confidence that God's promises will come true and if you have that, then it will transform everything. And see, hope is something you can't fake. You can't uh, just manufacture it. You can't study it, you can't buy it, you can't develop it so much. It's something that you either have or you do not have. It's something that is profoundly within you that God gives as you follow him, as you stand with him 
He assures you that he is standing with you and then he gives you this hope. And this hope is the thing that transforms everything and starts, people, people will start to notice it. So that's the picture here in this verse. The picture here is that people know that you're a Christian and they see something different about you and ask how you got it. Your life begs the question, of what, what, why are you like this? And it's most profound when you're being opposed, when life is difficult or when you're being persecuted. That's when the hope is most extraordinary. As Clark puts it, the reality is in this life, the rich have reason to hope, the comfortable have every reason to hope, beautiful people have reason to hope, powerful people have reason to hope. But when our hope is inexplicable, when it doesn't make sense, that's when people open their ears to hear what we have to say. So if you're still gentle when other people are cruel towards you, if you're still respectful when they're horrible towards you, they have to ask questions. How did you get this? Why do you have this perspective? How do you have this joy? What is this hope that you have? Because the world longs for hope. The ideas that surround us don't work and won't ever work. They're false and they're flimsy. But people with hope have answers. And that's what people want. How about we pray that we be people of hope? Father God, we want to thank you for this passage. It's hard for us, it's uncomfortable for us to think about uh, persecution. Lord, we ask that, um, we do ask that you might keep us from that. But also, Lord, we understand that those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, Lord, help us to stand, to resolve now to stand with you no matter what. Thank you that you will stand with us. So prepare us to make a defence. Help us to make that defence boldly, humbly, with gentleness and respect. Most of all, Lord, we ask that you might give us such a hope, bread of the future, bread of Christ's vindication. You might give us such a hope that people ask questions. They see something in us that's beautiful. They want it for themselves. And then we can explain where we got it from. May we point to the answer. May our lives beg the question. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.